0: Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, so go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord Descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, As he said, Come see the place where he lay. And this story has been spreading among the Jews to this day. Pray with me if you would. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this testimony. Not only this, but in all four Gospels, and the letters of Paul, of the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, uh, many think it's naive to believe in this, the greatest miracle in the history of man. Lord, but we want to love you with our minds this morning by considering the evidence. But Lord, we need more than evidence. We need your Holy Spirit to work, to give us faith in you. I said this would take place this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of our sermon this morning is, uh, Don't Be an Atheist Because of the Resurrection. And I want to qualify this. I realize it's a provocative title. Uh, But obviously I can't force you, nor am I asking you, to not believe in God. Rather, if you're going to reasonably choose to remain a skeptic of Christianity, the God of Christianity, I would choose another issue. There's a number to choose from. There are difficult topics to address. Things like the problem of evil, the idea that God is all good all powerful, so why is there evil in the world? It's a hard thing. Or or the issue of evolution. You get the idea. These kinds of issues that are difficult sometimes to address. Or perhaps you'll choose something else. You'll choose to listen today to what I believe is the most defensible and most important Christian miracle and when considering all the facts, it seems most reasonable to believe that a man named Jesus from Nazareth died, and his entire person rose from the dead. I want to give you a little preview. Here's where we're going this morning. One, just want to talk a little bit about the decision-making process. We're making decisions about anything. Two, we're going to talk about uh, the, the objections, the skeptical objections to the resurrection, and thirdly, what becomes possible. What becomes a possibility because of the resurrection? Let's talk about the decision making process. A number of you guys who are here this morning moved here to man. All right, and I've got an opportunity to talk with many of you about your reasons for moving here and, and your decision to move here and, and what played into that. For some, it was simply your, your job or your field of discipline brought you here. You applied, maybe the other places you applied didn't accept you, this place did. And you came. But for most of us, it was a combination of things, right? When you're deciding to move to a new place, it's a combination of things, right? Quality of living, um, cost of living, uh, proximity to country of origin, salary, season of life, schools, right? And, of course, that clear icy blue water that just enchants us all, right? And so you take some of those things I mentioned for us were, were negatives. There were hard things to deal with and address. Some were positives. But you sit back and you weigh them, don't you? It's a natural thing to do. You might not make the list that people talk about of positives and negatives, but naturally we weigh these things when making decisions. You have done what philosophers call a cumulative case argument. A cumulative case argument. You've made an argument for living in K Man over against all the other options, Based on weighing the positives and negatives, what seemed most reasonable. What I'm asking you to do this morning is to apply those same principles to decision making with the resurrection. I think sometimes we apply all these things to life. We make decisions this way for other things, but we don't on this large issue of what's going to happen to us after we die. Did this man named Jesus rise from the dead? And why does that matter to us? Now, most of the world actually affirms an afterlife. And yet, we have this kind of paradox or contradiction that so few of us are willing to consider the evidence and make a decision about the resurrection. Which, by the way, is itself a decision, isn't it? So what I'm asking you to do is, through a cumulative case argument, weigh the evidence. Which makes more sense in consideration of all the historical evidence that Jesus supernaturally rose from the dead or that his body and his bones rotted in the ground, just like everyone else. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because either he rose or he decomposed. Those are our two options. To deliberate over a decision... Any decision, you've got to care about it first, though, right? You have to be somewhat invested in the decision. Right? Has anyone been asked by their spouse to make a decision in which you weren't really invested in that decision? Anyone? Okay, so I'm going to say those many, that many people are married. We have four people who are married here. So, this happens frequently to me. I'm called to make a decision. I just say to myself, I'm not invested in this. So, out loud, I say why don't you choose, honey? (laughs) Right? And then she realizes quickly, I don't care about what she cares about. So, that's not good. But I want us to have a reason for being invested in this, this question before us this morning. Why, first of all, why is the resurrection important to Christianity? Let's talk about that first. It's the only major religion. I'm just going to give you one reason. There's a couple, but I'll give you one. Christianity is the only major religion that entirely depends on, upon a historical person. Entirely depends on this man Jesus. Without Jesus, it falls. Siddhartha, also known as Buddha, he always claimed that he was reaching for something beyond himself, a divine beyond himself. Muhammad, the prophet, started Islam, but he was a self-proclaimed prophet, only the prophet for Allah. In Christianity, everything depends on Jesus. The question of divinity solely depends on Jesus. So his resurrection, his defeat of death through it, affirms his divinity. And it confirms everything he said and did, including his death on the cross. So it is incredibly important. Everything hinges, C.S. Lewis said, everything hinges on this miracle of miracles, Christianity. But we also want to know why... Should this matter to me personally? Right? Why does this matter to me and you personally? In 1985, Joe Simpson and his buddy Simon Yates decided they'd climb a 21,000 foot high mountain in Peru. Halfway up, Simpson fell and he smashed the bones in his leg, multiple bones in his right leg. Yates, his buddy, tried to lower him down the mountain but as he tried to do so he realized with both of their weight he was dragging them both off the mountain. So soon enough he was forced to make an agonizing decision. And that decision was to cut the rope. And he watched as his friend plummeted down in the darkness of a huge crevice. So giving him up for dead, he headed back to the base camp. Simpson, however, actually survived. You can believe it or not. He survived. He spent the next three and a half torturous days inching down the mountain. Pain in every movement. No food, no water. Later, he wrote about what helped him endure and keep going despite the pain. He said, What was terrible was knowing I was going to die alone. I've never gotten over that and I don't think I ever will. When I had accepted in my heart that I was going to die, why did I keep crawling over those rocks causing myself so much pain? I'm sure it was because if I was going to die, I wanted someone to hold me. And for a rough, tough mountaineer, that was a pathetic thing to be left with wasn't it? the resurrection matters because we fear the horror of being left totally alone at death and that's inevitable in death right? left totally alone a woman once remarked to her husband on his deathbed honey because I'm here you won't die alone while the man nodded he admittedly, somewhat coldly, but truthfully said, Ultimately, I will. Die alone, that is. Because once I draw my last breath, I leave alone. And I leave you alone. John 11, 25 and 26 says this. Jesus is basically on his way to a funeral, or so everyone around him thinks. He says to Martha, whose brother has just died, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Essentially, really, that's a, a good nutshell for the question before us this morning. Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life. If you believe in him, he won't die. Do you believe in this? No one likes to talk of death, right? However, either something or nothing lies beyond death's door. And sooner or later all of us are going to find out what that is. And so we're asked the question, the question before us is are you okay with death? And that should matter to each of us. Are you okay with death? We have the best-selling, most well-attested book in human history that states as fact that the resurrection occurred. So we're going to start with that this morning as our foundation. Now that we're motivated, we see a reason. There's a reason why the resurrection could, at least. It's possible that it matters. So we're going to start with our baseline. The Bible says the resurrection happened. But obviously, when you claim that some dude died, came undead, neatly folded His burial clothes and put them to the side, and then still in human form, flew through a five to ten foot wall of stone while still in human form, people are gonna have questions. Alright? And that's understandable. So that's really what we're gonna get to this morning, because those are legitimate questions, and I'd like to answer some of those skepticism, some of that skepticism, some of those questions and objections. So we're gonna start here this morning, answering the objections to the resurrection. First one. It's a simple one. How do we know that Jesus existed and was executed on a cross? Some people say, hey, how do I know that Jesus was even alive? The Bible tells me, but the Bible is biased. Sure, it's got some good things to say, but we can't believe just from just that. Well, thankfully, Jesus' existence and his execution on a cross is one of the most well-attested facts of history. Few scholars disagree on this. Uh, I'll just give you one. Tacitus, an early 2nd second, uh, second century historian, secular man, not a Christian, referred to, quote, Christ who had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. There's a lot of these. I had about six or seven more references here, but you can look at Julius Africanus, the uh, Jewish uh, pharisaical historian, uh, Josephus, uh, Phallus, others who affirmed Jesus' life and death on a cross. So we're going to move swiftly past this, uh, because it seems to be fairly well attested. Second question, was the tomb really empty? So if Jesus died, it's reasonable to believe he was buried in a tomb, like all Jews would have been, most Jews. Was the tomb really empty? And the surest comment we have from this comes from a man named Matthew, a former tax collector. Now, I realize you can see this is biased because Matthew followed and loved Jesus and so he'd want to support Jesus' claim. At least look with me at what he says. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. We looked at this earlier and read it earlier. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders, these are the Jewish elders, and taken counsel they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now this little remark... Here at the end, this story among the Jews has been spread to this day shows us Matthew's concern to refute a widespread Jewish explanation for the empty tomb, for the resurrection. What explanation did they give for the resurrection? Well, was it that these men wanted so badly for it to happen that they began to believe it and they deceived themselves? Kind of this wish fulfillment idea. Was it that they, you know, they tossed back too much wine, that they'd hallucinated? That they got the wrong tomb. No. Explanation was the disciples stole the body. I want to hang here for a moment. You guys get that? Their explanation was the disciples stole the body. In other words, unknowingly... The Jewish propaganda machine here, which was significant at the time, does not deny the empty tomb, but concerns itself with the best way to spin it. Alright, so you may say, well, you know, there are other explanations for the empty tomb. But one thing we know for sure is that the Jewish propaganda itself confirms that the tomb was empty. And if the tomb was really empty, the highly motivated Jewish leaders, they were highly motivated, right? Look at the conspiracy, the riots caused at Christ's death, the infiltration of his inner circle to betray him. They were highly motivated. They would have surely produced a body. Dr. John Warwick Montgomery puts it this way, It passes the bounds of credibility that the early Christians could have manufactured such a tale and then preached it among those who might easily have refuted it simply by producing a body. Forty days after the resurrection it was being preached. It was being told three or four days after the resurrection but publicly we know at least forty days afterwards why wasn't a body produced. There was every reason to do it. And we know that Jewish leaders had connections. Look at their end they had with Pilate to get them to listen to their case about Jesus. Look at the fact they got a guard to go out and, and guard his tomb. Does that make sense? It seems, most reasonably, that the tomb was truly empty. But that leads us to another question. Even if you were to believe this, it seems most reasonably believe the tomb was empty, how do we know, how do we account for an empty tomb? How do we account for an empty tomb? And this is where the meat of our argument lays this morning. We've got to really spend some time. The first way people try to account for an empty tomb. And it's actually one of the best explanations. Next to the last one, I think, I'm going to give you. And that is, Jesus' disciples stole the body. In other words, so we can, taking Matthew 28 at face value, even if Matthew made up this story about, this was why the tomb was empty, because, you know, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders got together, had this conspiracy, paid off the soldiers, etc. Let's say that's false and the disciples really stole the body. Well, there's a few problems with this. Problem number one, they lack the strength and the stealth to do this. Let me tell you why. Now, you know, let's just assume even if they're, they're bodybuilders, all right? Just old time, they found some, some type of Jewish hyssop plant uh, like, that acted like steroids. But let's talk about Jesus' body here. And the custom, the custom for the Jews was to wrap bodies in linen cloths with about 100 pounds of aromatic spices mixed together with a sticky goo, basically sticky goo. And that was applied to the cloths around the body. On the dead body. Which, you know, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. You can ask anyone at a morgue. You know, if you're confronted with a dead body that's there for a while, you want, you know, potpourri and some type of goo just to cover it all up. It's going to smell bad for a while. So that's what happened there. After this, the body was placed into a tomb of rock with a large stone that weighed approximately two tons. It was a large, disc shaped stone, and it was rolled in front of the tomb basically by a system of levers. Not even by the very strong military guard. A Roman guard, as Matthew tells us, in the case of Jesus, then is stationed there. And this was a serious matter. One writer of military history says, the fear of punishment, quote, produced flawless attention to duty, especially in the night watches. This guard would have affixed on the tomb a Roman seal, signifying Rome's authority. If broken, if the seal was broken, the typical punishment for the guard would be crucifixion upside down. It was a very, very serious matter. So basically, if you take this argument that the, the disciples stole the body, you're saying that some fishermen, a former tax collector, and basically a bunch of mama's boys, most of whom Had just deserted or denied knowing Jesus, not only got past the Roman military guard, but they were strong enough to roll a two ton stone away from a tomb without any levers. Personally, I think that takes more faith to believe that than the resurrection. But the second problem they lacked motive. They lacked motive. The Jewish worldview had a different conception of the resurrection than we read here in Matthew 28. Let's look back again at John 11. This was just before Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again, talking about Lazarus. Martha, Martha said to him, I know that you will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is very important. This is the common understanding of the resurrection among Jews in the first century, and going back for some time, is the idea that at the end of history, all of the righteous would rise from the dead. It would not happen at a point in history by one man, and certainly not while the world is still still filled with sin, sickness, and suffering. So this idea of a bodily resurrection of the Messiah was totally foreign to the Jewish understanding of the resurrection. So the disciples didn't have a motive to say, hey, let's get Jesus out of the dead. Remember, they didn't understand. If you read back, when Jesus says, you know, I like the temple, after three days we'll rise. They were like, what? Huh? They They weren't waiting around for Jesus to rise from the dead. They were depressed after his death. And you might say well maybe they were rebelling against the Jewish worldview but then we have to understand that this smacked against anything any worldview they would have known the Greco-Roman worldview of the day was quite different the first century Mediterranean world had no conception of a bodily resurrection why you may know this from little history but basically the body was bad it's bad the spirit or the soul was good So salvation back then was understood as the body, excuse me, the spirit being liberated from the body. So the idea of someone bodily rising from the dead would be awful to a Greco-Roman understanding. So basically the point is this. They had no motive because this was a completely different worldview. This idea of a bodily resurrection in the middle of history while the world was still going on. And Not only would they have to make this up out of nowhere, they have to be willing to die for it. Which brings me to my last point on this one. They must be willing to die for a lie. Problem number three. Ten of the twelve apostles, ten of the twelve, were killed because they believed in the resurrection and spoke boldly of it. Within about thirty years of Jesus' death, Christians, because of the resurrection and boldly proclaiming it, were strongly persecuted, severely persecuted by the Emperor Nero. They were often clothed in skins of beasts and wild dogs would attack them. Christians also had basically this kind of tar or pitch smeared over them and they were lit on fire and used as torches, human torches, to light the night sky. Just within 30 years the resurrection. The question would remain there, why would people make this up if that was going to be their end? As one of my favorite uh, writers, thinkers, Blaise Pascal said, I for one believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. The second objection to the resurrection is that Jesus never really died. This is called the often called the swoon theory. It's the idea that Jesus didn't really die, that he fainted. He fainted uh, from exhaustion and lack of blood, then later he was resuscitated, and the disciples thought that he rose from the dead. Really, he was still alive. Most skeptics and non-Christian scholars don't you know, think that this objection is fairly far-fetched. It would have to be this kind of scenario. A half-dead man, moved a two-ton stone, crept about the city unnoticed while needing significant medical attention, then he stumbled amongst the disciples, and then they thought that he was the king of kings, right? The conquering lord over death, right? That's pretty far-fetched. As one uh, uh, self-proclaimed agnostic scholar put it, this could only have weakened the impression among the disciples that he was the king of kings. A third option is the soldiers stole the body. I'm going to breeze past this one because again, there's just there's no motive for them to steal the body. These soldiers didn't care. That comes through in the accounts we have in the Gospels. And of course, I mentioned earlier the upside down crucifixion. Why would they do that for nothing? Four, fourth objection: some sham artists, some charlatans i.e. the New Testament writers made the whole thing up. They made up the resurrection. That's a fourth objection to it. Well, first of all, if you're going to make something up, it's got to be convincing, right? You want to make it sound convincing. And there are three things you want to avoid if you want to convince people. There are three things you want to avoid as a sham artist. Number one, you want to have witnesses at the main event but there were none at the resurrection number two if you're going to make up a story you don't want to have your key characters having no clue what's going on which again happened with the disciples the leaders of the Christian church had no clue that Jesus was going to rise from the dead they didn't expect a resurrection in the middle of history and thirdly you don't use unreliable witnesses in all the accounts of the resurrection in the first signs of Jesus it is women who see Jesus first and in the ancient near east women couldn't legally testify in a court of law so if you're going to make up a story you wouldn't have witnesses who couldn't legally testify to the truth now if you believe like me in other parts of life that the truth is stranger than fiction I want to encourage you to apply it here as well the apostles, the writers of the New Testament just reported the facts. And they were weird. The second problem with this is there wasn't enough time for myths and legends to develop. This is important. There wasn't enough time between the Holy Week of Easter and the writings of the Gospels for myths and legends to be widely circulated. This is important. Almost everyone thinks, everyone agrees that Paul writes of the resurrection in books like Galatians and Corinthians, no longer than twenty years after the Easter weekend. Secular historians of this era, just before Christ was born and afterwards, say it takes one to two generations for legends and myths to develop. But not here with the resurrection. Not even a third of a generation. In fact, one man said for the events of Easter to become legend over 20 years would be a, quote, unbelievable rate. Unbelievable rate development. Well, perhaps because it wasn't a myth. The fifth explanation. It's the resurrection that answers why the empty tomb. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-8. Apostle Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, my bad. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared also to me. Well, two things about these verses. In verse 3, if the early Christians believed anything, they believed. This of first importance, as Paul says, the resurrection. It was faithfully passed down from the apostles to church leaders to the people in the church. Secondly, look at verse 6 with me here. Verse 6 says, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. As C.H. Dodd, one New Testament scholar at Cambridge University says, there can hardly be any purpose in mentioning the fact that most of these 500 are still alive unless Paul is saying, in effect, the witnesses are there to be questioned. Go for it. In summary, we have six facts that explain the resurrection. Number one, To review here, Jesus died. Two, Jesus was buried in the tomb. Three, the tomb was later found empty. Four, many people say they saw Jesus after his crucifixion. Five, resurrection exploded as a widely accepted but radically new worldview just months after it occurred. Six, ten of twelve apostles were killed for believing it and preaching it. So I ask you to weigh the facts this morning and the possibilities, and ask yourself, which makes more sense? That Jesus, on the one hand, supernaturally rose from the dead? Or that his body and bones decompose in the ground, just like everyone else's? So again, either he rose or he decomposed. What then becomes possible through the belief in the resurrection? One, being miraculously okay with death becomes possible. Because Jesus is the risen king. He will be the first face you see when you pass on from this life. Not alone, but with him. Secondly, the most important thing about Christianity becomes possible, and that is grace. The idea, the doctrine that God freely and effectively forgives sins. And that's important. Because he... Grace, or forgiveness, is often extended in sappy green cards. You know, you find it in, in movies that are sentimental. But forgiveness without effective power remains just that. powerless, sentimental. Katie and I just had a family friend whose son attempted to murder his girlfriend this past week. And she died on Friday. And as our friend, a mother, sat down with a girlfriend's mother in the hospital room before she had died, this mother of the young woman reached out to hold our friend's hand. And as she did, she said, This act does not define how we view you or your son, or how we love you or your son. I thought about this, and I might be so bold, I want to go behind these words for a moment and ask that hard question Is that really true? Is it really possible an injury, great or small, doesn't affect how I view you? Doesn't alter what I think of you? Doesn't slightly deteriorate our relationship? It sounds impossible from life experience. It might sound impossible from your experience. But not for one who knows the resurrection and the life. The one in whom there is both tender forgiveness combined with great power. Effective power because he rose from the dead. If you think the resu- resurrection is the, the best possible explanation for an empty tomb, it doesn't make you a Christian, but it does put you on the doorstep of faith. And if you find yourself there this morning believing that's the best explanation on the doorstep of faith, I want to encourage you to come speak to me. I'm going to speak to one of our leaders, Mike or Sarah Hossel, after the service. We'll be down here because we want to tell you about the King of Kings. And I really want to share with you more about my King.
1: The Bible says my King is the King of the Jews. This idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the pride. He sympathizes and he saves. He strippens. sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive, He defends the evil. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the weak. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well strength of wisdom. He's a doorway He's a highway of holiness. He's a- For He's He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You think you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilot couldn't find any fault in him. Terra couldn't kill him shit with the hands and the green.